Uh, Our sermon text today is from Mark 5, verses 21 to 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt her in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who has touched my garment? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd passing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing What they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumini, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Not long ago, I read a book by Jerry Sitzer called A Grace Disguised. And if you know anything about the book, it is a, it's about a tragedy in his life. He was coming away from a Native American ceremony with his family. They're on a reservation in Idaho. And they're about 10 minutes outside of where the ceremony was. And in his minivan was his wife, his mother, and his four children. And suddenly, careening around the road on a turn in a bend in the night, a car came at them at 85 miles per hour. They found out later on the man was drunk, hit them head on. 
And in the space just like that, he lost his mother, his wife, and one of his children. And in the opening pages of the book, after he explains the, the accident, he said he sat there on the side of the road waiting for emergency personnel to arrive, collapsed as his wife died in his arms and his mother and one of his daughters as well. And the whole book, A Grace Disguised, is about where the rubber meets the road in faith. And everything that he said that he believed about God was up for grabs. It was a question mark. And I think that's important because we've been in this series called A Portrait of Jesus. And we've been saying all along that we really, totally, truly need to see who he actually is. And in truly seeing who he is, we come to know who we are and how we are to respond to him. But it's at that place that intersection where everything's up for grabs. And I know, because I've been here since we started this church, I know that for some of you right now, that's your story. It's either chronic or it's acute. And think about these two stories. One's chronic, 12 years. One's acute. Right now, my daughter's dying. And that, that really just so captures and encapsulates so many of you and your stories. Certainly not just the pandemic, something that's, that's now becoming uh, not just acute but chronic. But for some of you, it's much more acute than that. And think about these stories. Stories of loneliness, fear, trembling, anticipation, hope, crushed. All sorts of things. This is our story. Today we're looking at two stories wrapped into one. Looking at one Savior who speaks to those two stories. And what I want to suggest to you is that what's on the line for these two is the same thing that's on the line for us. And that is what is faith and what is hope. And in the process, can we answer that question together? And so is there an intersection of faith and hope with our crises that we're dealing with right now, individually and collectively? And I think the answer is yes. And what I want to say is, if we know Him, we come to then know what is faith, and then we can activate it and have hope as well. Three things to get us there this morning. Number one, we need to see the lives that we are enduring. Number two, how Jesus touches our lives the touch that he gives, and finally, and lastly here, the hope we can have. So let's look at the first thing, the lives that we endure. Now, Mark is using a literary technique called the sandwich. I know what you're thinking. I know what a sandwich is. Well, maybe you don't. So in, in literary circles, a sandwich is to take one story and place it inside of another story, like a sandwich, right? And what happens when you put a sandwich together? You, you have multiple ingredients that together create a different sort of taste, Something that you wouldn't have had without that combination. And by the end of the sermon, I think you're going to see why Mark uses a sandwich here. But these are stories of reality, as I've said. Now, these two, Jairus and this woman, they could not be more different, socially speaking. Jairus was the ruler of the local synagogue. As such, he had prominence. He probably had a lot of wealth. He certainly had a ton of cultural influence in that village. But who's this woman? We don't even know her name. Like, she's, a, she's literally a nobody. And we were told in the text that, that she had spent everything that she had. So she was an impoverished woman who's at a moment of despair. And there was nothing to her name in, in that sort of culture anyway. Being a woman, being impoverished, she's at the lowest rung socially in that society. She could not be more different from Jairus. And yet, at the same time, paradoxically, they could not be more alike. And the reason for that is this. Suffering, 
is the great equalizer in our lives. Suffering is the great equalizer. It takes someone who's wealthy, it takes someone who's poor, and they can have the same exact crisis. You've heard it said before, cancer doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care where you're at socially in the rungs of life, right? And they would know this. I mean, if you go to a hospital, you can have someone with incredible wealth and power and influence right next to someone with none of those things. One bed away. And here's the thing that I want you to see in the first point here. Suffering in our lives, crises of all sorts, it ends self-determination. It has the power, it has the influence to end self-determination. I can tell you this much, that when I find myself more often than not going to my knees in prayer, it's when I'm in a moment of crisis. What about you? Right? And now, the reality is, our faith would suggest that we need to be on our knees in desperation all the time, regardless of what our circumstances are, but that's not actually how we live our lives. We tend to go in moments of desperation. That's because it is in crisis and suffering that ends our tendency towards self-determination. You follow? Right? But the, before we go to the second point, here's what I want you to see, though. I think this is where really the rubber meets the road in our stories. This is where we tend to struggle the most, I think, when we come to texts like this. Maybe even you had this feeling as you're hearing these two stories. And that is God's timing. I want you to think about this story. Now, again, uh, we're going to, in just a second, I want, we're going to really dive deep into this woman's story. But I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Jairus right now. Your daughter is on the edge of death. In the Hebrew there, it means that she was on death's door. She is just moments away from ending her life. And Jairus, who is a man of social prominence, in a moment of desperation, he falls on prostrate before Jesus the rabbi. Now this is very socially awkward, what he's doing here, but he's falling face first in the dirt and in the dust because he's so desperate for a, a miracle cure, basically. Jesus, he's heard, might have it. Jesus, will you come? And much to his surprise, perhaps, Jesus says, absolutely, let's go. And so he begins. But, but you see, there's a throng that's going with Jesus here, as was always the case with Jesus. And as they're moving, they're jostling, there are lots of people, suddenly he stops. Because someone has touched him. Now, Jairus doesn't know what's going on. We know that, but Jairus doesn't. So you, can you imagine? Your daughter's on death's door, and suddenly Jesus stops, and he begins to have a conversation with a total stranger. I mean, we know this in medicine. Some of you have studied for medicine. You're going to study for medicine. You're doctors. You're medical. You know that when two people are in trouble, one has a chronic issue, the other has an acute issue, you deal with the acute issue first. You deal with a person that's literally about to die. What's a few more minutes or hours for someone who's been dealing with something for 12 years? But Jesus changes all that. The ambulance is on, on the way to the hospital with someone who's at death's door, and the ambulance stops them because they see someone falling on the side and just want to make sure they're okay. You would say, what? You don't do that. But Jesus does. More on that here in a second. So imagine being Jairus. And there's a delay and the delay cost your daughter's life. You see, I think that's where the rubber meets the road for us. How many times have you been in a place, chronic or acute, where you're saying, God, where were you? How long, Lord? Psalm 40. How long, Lord? How long must I sing this song of suffering? How long, O oh Lord? Where are you? Yeah? Um, 
in a very different way. <laughs> this past week, we came home for a spring break, and, and we, we came home, and the oven would not turn on, the gas wouldn't turn on. And so I'm like, what's going on here? So let's call in someone. So appliance company comes out the next day. Uh, I'm here at the office, and so Kirsten's texting with me, and she's saying, they've just took the whole oven apart, they put it back together, and there's no problem with it. Now, what before I'd left to go to work, I checked to make sure that we had heat coming into the house, or gas coming into the house, and so I turned the heat on downstairs in the basement, and it came on. So the problem clearly is with the oven. It's not with the house, something like that, but clearly it, the oven's not a problem. It's a brand new oven, by the way. And so they're saying, we don't know what's going on. And so Kirsten begins to make a series of phone calls to the gas company. And it turns out the gas had been turned off, disconnected from her house while we were gone last week. So you're saying, whoa, 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 I thought you just said, yeah, gas. Well, here's the thing. Like a lot of you, we have an old house, and we have multiple gas lines coming in. And so we have multiple gas accounts. And so what happened was, our, my credit card got hacked a couple months ago. And so we had to open up a new account. Now, one of my gas accounts, the downstairs one, where I happened to turn the gas on and the heat on, well, it just so turns out that one was on my bank account, drafted it automatically, but on my credit card was the upstairs account. I know some of you are saying, why don't you just put them all together? That's a whole other story. But, but right now, I'm, 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 I'm incredibly frustrated at this point. I, I am so frustrated because we just wasted money on to fix an appliance that didn't need to fix, right? And what I should have said was that once the gas company turned off, they're supposed to put a notice on our house to let us know that that's happened. They did not do that or else we wouldn't have had to need someone come out and spend money that we didn't need to spend. You follow? So now I'm getting really frustrated. I'm getting really angry. Some of you know I can do that really well. And then Kirsten texts me next. And she says, they're going to come back and turn on. It's going to be five days. And I lost it. Mike was there. He saw it. Kirsten heard about it via text. I said things that I now regret about people that I've never met before in the gas company. And, and um, as my mentor says, I got wrapped around an axle. And why do I tell you that? Because I was inconvenienced. I was going to be able to use gas for cooking for five days, and it completely undid me. Mike's going to be preaching on the groundedness of Jesus. I was ungrounded in the most dramatic way imaginable. And it was just because my desire was blocked. Now, I want to read to you a quote from George MacDonald. George MacDonald uh, was a pastor. He's also a progenitor of modern uh, fantasy literature, 19th century writer, He said this, He may delay because it would not be safe to give us at once what we ask. We are not ready for it. To give ear we could truly receive would be to destroy the very heart and hope of prayer, to cease to be our Father. The delay itself may work to bring us nearer to our help, to increase the desire, perfect the prayer, and ripen the receptive condition. God is limited by regard for our best. And what I realized in putting this sermon together the very same week where this is all happening was like, I missed out on an opportunity. It was so micro. It was just that our gas had been disconnected. Inconvenience. You know, it was my fault, ultimately. They had sent a disconnectness. I just didn't see it. It was all buried on the second page of my notice, and I didn't see it. But that's on me. And, and, but because of that, I was undone. But how much more so for people who have experienced a lot more? Some of you, right now, the acute crisis in your marriage. Chronic in your marriage. 
or in your singleness. It's a disease in your body. It's racking you. Just pray. We have prayer. We have 9 a.m. prayer, and in the process, we're we're praying for someone who's not in our congregation who has been dealing with chronic issues for several years, and, and literally. And they said on the prayer time, they said, and the doctors don't know what's going on. And I know the people in our congregation would say, that's my story as well. And, and so, what an opportunity, right, to, to say in the delay, God might be speaking. There may be something that we need. And when we short-circuit that process, even with something as micro as what happened to me, right, a minor inconvenience, a minor crisis. But regardless of minor, whether it's major, God is speaking to us, wants to speak to us in the midst of our crises, in the midst of our challenges. The question is, do we have ears to hear? In a culture on demand, which is what we have in the West, in a culture on demand, it is very hard for us to hear the voice of God, isn't it? We have a really hard time. If things don't happen just like that, right? We order a movie just like that and on our, on our devices at home, and, and, and God says, I don't move like that. I don't move to your timetable. And so I think that's where the rubber meets the road here, the first thing. It's the lives we endure and trying to understand God's timing. But I want you to see that if our hands are open in the midst of God's delay, the great physician, we might charge you with malpractice, what's going on here. But in the midst of that delay, if our hands are open, we receive the touch of Jesus here, secondly. I want to do a deeper dive now into this woman's story. So let's look at verses 25 and 20, through 28. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. It was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Commentators have wondered, what was the, what was the issue there physically for her? There, there actually are conditions today where a woman, especially with a menstrual cycle, it can be ongoing rather than weekly, you know, once a month sort of thing, where it can, it all, in a sense, never ends. And commentators have wondered, is that what's going on here? And let me tell you, regardless of what it is, why that's so important. Because in a Jewish culture, uh, according to Old Testament law, when a woman is going through her cycle, you know, for that week and then the following week after that, they're considered unclean and impure. And as a result, they cannot enter the temple or the synagogue. Now, think about this. If this is a constant, ongoing problem for 12 years, she doesn't just have a medical problem, friends. She has a social problem. It means that for 12 years, she's been in utter isolation. And so when she reaches out to touch the hem of the garment of Jesus, it's a game changer. And I want to tell you why here in a second, why I think Jesus stops. But I, I want you to just put yourself in the, in, the, in the shoes now of this woman. What is she looking to Jesus for? She's looking for the miracle cure. In other words, what she's doing is she's treating Jesus as a talisman. Her, this is, I want you to think about this. Her faith is a very superstitious faith. There were beliefs in the ancient world, both within religion and, or within Judaism as well as outside of the belief that if you touch a holy person, it's like a relic, you know, right? It's an amulet around the neck. It's, it's, it's a power that you get from them. It gives, you, it gives you the miracle cure that you're looking for, you see. And, and we, we think of this, we say, how silly, right? How superstitious. 
And we, we, we see people who are in the midst of chronic ailments, especially today's age, and they turn to miracle cures that are on the infomercials at, at one in the morning, right? And we find ourselves saying, how silly. I mean, really, to spend all that money, and yet the reason why we say that is because we're not in a place of desperation, friends. Because when you are in a place of desperation, suddenly the things that you thought were silly don't look so silly anymore. That's this woman. And here's what's amazing. Her weak, superstitious faith, it's enough. I want you to just meditate on that for a second. What this passage is teaching is a weak faith in the right thing or the right person is much better than a greater faith in the wrong thing or the wrong person. We place our great faith, we place our great confidence in our careers, our great confidence in our skill sets. We place great confidence in faith in our marriages or in our singleness or relationship status. We place great confidence in these things. And what happens is this woman has a weak, superstitious or borderline superstitious faith, and it's enough. And it's not even faith in, in Jesus as Lord or something like that. Her faith is in touching his garment, and by the grace of God, it's enough. Which leads here to the second thing. What does the woman want? She just wants a cure. She doesn't want Jesus. She wants to slink away into the crowd and be done with it. It's an exchange. She's done with the exchange. But what does Jesus want? He's like, no, no. We're not done here. (laughs) Now, Jesus wants to know who touched him. And in the process, this woman, it says, comes with fear and trembling. Why do you think she comes with fear and trembling? And the answer is, Because she is unclean, she has touched a rabbi, which is a massive social no-no. And she thinks she's about to be called out publicly in her village, where everyone's in everyone's business, by the way. She's about to be called out and publicly shamed by the rabbi. That's what she's expecting. And so she's coming with fear and trembling to identify herself. And what does Jesus do? First grace is the healing itself, the superstitious faith. And the second grace is he actually socially restores her in that society, in that village. It is a remarkable position here. She comes not for someone. She comes for something. Jesus says, I want someone. I want you. I want you to see two things here about Jesus and what he wants. Number one, he wants to care relationally for you and me. He absolutely wants to enter into a relationship with us more than he, that is the most valuable thing for him. Here's the thing about Jesus. You come to Jesus, you come with a weak and superstitious faith, whatever, and it's enough, right? But you come saying, Jesus, I need your things right now. I need the cure. It's not as much you I want. But, and, and what happens is you get more than you bargained for. It's always that way with Jesus. God always gives you, requires infinitely more than you imagined, right? He wants a relationship doesn't say just come for my things, come for me. But he always gives you much more than you imagine. As this woman, as Jairus himself experienced, we always get more. And what does this woman get? She gets a name. Did you see that? Jairus is named in the text, but we don't know her name. But now we do. What is it? Daughter. He calls her family. You're my daughter. Go in peace. Is that not remarkable? This stranger who touches him for his things, for his power, what does she get? Daughter. That is remarkable, friends. 
They're remarkable. Son, daughter. The first thing that Jesus wants is to know us through and through. Here's the second thing, though. In the process, he wants to reverse our values. What do you mean by that, Scott? Well, I want you to think about Jairus again. Jairus, the prominent one, wealthy, powerful, influential. Everyone in that crowd expected Jesus to immediately go with Jairus. So when that happens, not only is Jairus having a glimmer of hope now, the crowd's like, of course, he's the local ruler of the synagogue. Of course Jesus is going to go with him. I mean, Jesus is pretty influential himself, and so influential people help influential people, after all, in culture. That's what we do. And Jesus, what does he do? He sees a stranger, or he doesn't know, he doesn't see her yet, but he, he wants to know who this is, sees this woman who's at the lowest social rung in that society, and he elevates her. And he makes her the center of his everything, the center of his attention. Let me tell you, I want you to see that. What he's doing is he's reversing cultural values. And Christianity is always intending to do that. Some of you know that every year I go to India on a teaching mission. And I've been doing that for years now, unless there's a pandemic going on. But normally that's what I do. And one of the reasons why I go there is because it is such an honor to be with these pastors. Primarily what I'm doing is I'm teaching theology to pastors there. It is such an honor to be with these village pastors who, by the way, have had very little in their lives, materially speaking. But what little they have, they're willing to give up for the sake of the gospel. When I say that, what I mean is literally some of them have been put to death. Because in that culture, it's a very, it's a hostile culture to Christianity in particular. And it is very dangerous to be a follower of Jesus Christ, especially as you get outside the cities into the countryside, into these villages where primarily they are. And many of them have come from, a, in the caste system, many of them have come from what's called the Dalit caste. They're literally called the untouchables. And, and of, uh, in the Dalits, more Dalits have come to faith in Christ in India than any other class in India. And it makes sense when you begin to think about what is Christianity. Christianity is the sole religion, the sole belief system, because most religions, really, if you think about the stories around them, it's, it's people of influence often. It's people of status who have, who have an immediate connection with God. But when you see these stories, what you see is those values reversed. And so the Dalits say, I have nothing. And in Christ they see, I have everything. They're called untouchables. And they're touched by Jesus. And it changes everything. And so, friends, think about this. What is the cross? It's saying, I'm desperate. I have no life. What do you get? Everything. And for those of us who are ensconced and enraptured by our material possessions, we think that's where life is. What ends up happening is we get nothing in terms of true, flourishing, abundant life. Christianity reverses values. And even in the story, we see those values reversed. And what do we see here? This woman, she can't go to the temple. And what happens? The temple comes to her. Eugene Peterson's transliteration, the message, John chapter 1, and he tabernacled among them. He templed among them. But what happened to the temple? The temple was defiled. 
Jesus, the great physician, says, I can cure you of your sin disease, but it's going to cost me my life. I have to take your disease on me. In the book of Romans, Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin for you and for me. Jesus took the ultimate price of defilement, allowing himself to be put to death. Now, before we go to the conclusion, remember what I said towards the beginning about the sandwich. I want you to see why I think Mark puts these two stories together. I want you to see something in the portrait of Jesus that could not have happened unless Mark put these two stories together. Think for a second about the touch of the woman and then the touch that the little girl receives. Both heal, but in remarkably different ways. With a woman, she touches the garment of Jesus. And what happens to Jesus? What did it say? Power went out of him. It weakened him. Now, what happened when Jesus touches, and by the way, this is also defilement, touching a dead body, touches the little girl, what happens? It doesn't weaken him. He simply speaks. Now, where have we heard that before? A few weeks ago, I preached on the story of Lazarus. Lazarus, come out of the grave. In a very similar way. Jesus simply speaks. Remember what I said back, if you were here in that, in that uh, lesson on Lazarus? This is Genesis. This is new creation. And God spoke. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He spoke, and life came into existence. In other words, here's the sandwich. Here's what I want you to see that could not have happened. At the cross, what do we see of Jesus? We see weakness, don't we? We see the weakness of Jesus. We see, we see power coming out of him, as it were, by being destroyed, in a sense, by death. But what do we see at the resurrection? We see a word spoken, arise. Do you see that what's happening here? We see in the character of Jesus, the cross and the resurrection, in the woman and in the daughter of Jairus. And I think that's what Jesus, Mark, wants, Mark wants to see about Jesus, that he's putting these two stories together. He's teaching us a story of faith, but what he's showing us is this is the person of Jesus in whom we are to have faith. In his weakness, the cross, but in his power and strength, the resurrection of life. And so with that, friends, here's what I want us to ask in the end. How do we have hope? If Jesus is the one at the cross who was weakened to the point of death, at the resurrection, his power on display that defeats death, Christus Victor, Christ the victory, then how does that affect us? How does that inform us in the midst of crisis? Three things, but very quickly. Number one, it means, friends, that when you are in a place of crisis, and this could be you right now, and you're in a place of weak faith, you're saying, I'm a lot like that woman, or maybe I'm a lot like Jairus. You come to him desperate. You notice in verse 22, Jairus comes in desperation. Verse 27, the woman comes in desperation. Do you know what they have in common? Desperation, but movement as well. You see, when we are feeling hopeless, bitter, cynical, despairing, the tendency of all those things is to paralyze us. It's to say, God, I don't think you are who you say you are. I think it's, it's a pointless, uh, pointless prayer. Or I, I'm, I'm done. 
And what happens? After 12 years of chronic suffering, this woman in her superstitious, weak faith, she moves to Jesus. As minor as it is, as silly as it seems, she moves to Jesus and it's enough. So I think the first thing I want you to see here is it says, how, how can we have hope? It begins with a step in the right direction. It begins in coming with desperation on our knees to Him. Here's the second thing. It means that we embrace Him as Lord. Why do I say that? Well, let me come back here in the close with Jairus, verses 35 and 36. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Now, here's the question. When does Jesus say, Do not fear, only believe? Think about this. This is that delay. Remember the lesson that we were talking about earlier. Jesus could have said that before they got there. He could have said when he first met Jairus, Hey, Jairus, believe. Don't fear. I've got this. When does he say it? After she's dead. Talk about a malpractice delay. You talk about almost like salt in the wound otherwise, if he's not who he says he is. Don't worry, I've got this. After she's dead, what is he doing? Jesus is setting him up. Jesus is setting up because probably as the local ruler of the synagogue, though he's religious, though he's orthodox, he's never had the experience of God. He's never had the experience of Jesus. And so he's setting him up to have that experience. And the only way that he's going to have that experience is to see his desperation, to see his need, not a religious need, but to see his need of a relationship. And so he has to see that. And the only way he's going to see that is to be completely smashed, to be completely shattered. And that's what happens. And in essence, what, what Jesus said is, do you trust me regardless of what I'm going to do? Because at this point, he doesn't know. His daughter is dead. He doesn't know that Jesus is about to raise him to the dead, from the dead, the little girl. Now, he did see what happened with this woman. And so, I think Matthew nineteen twenty six makes sense in light of that. Where Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I think what Jesus is saying is, look, it's possible. It's not impossible. That doesn't mean I'm going to do it, but it does mean, do you trust me? Do you trust that I'm good? And see, that's where the rubber meets the road for you and for me. When we're in the midst of an acute or a chronic crisis, the question is, will we be able to say to Jesus, Jesus, I trust you. I don't get my circumstances. And like the psalmist, to say, how long, O Lord? Are you there? Do you hear my cry? That's, that's worship, actually. But the question is, do we believe in our heart of hearts like Jerry Sitzer in the Grace Disguise, do we believe that in the midst of tragedy and trauma, that he is a God who cares for us, like McDonald said, that he's saving his best for us, that we can only see on the other side of tragedy, on the other side of something that we can't wrap our hearts or our minds around? And I think the answer is yes to that. Jerry Sitzer, I mentioned him, he said this in the preface of that book, The decision to face the darkness, even if it led to overwhelming pain, showed me that the experience of loss itself does not have to be the defining moment of our lives. Instead, the defining moment can be our response to the loss. It is not what happens to us that matters as much as what happens in us. Jairus, regardless of what I do, will you trust me? And that's the moment. That's what's happening. Here's where I want to close. Here's where I want to close. I've mentioned two words, faith and hope, but I want you to know they're not the same thing. Faith is looking back. 
faith is saying, in light of what's happened in the past, either 2,000 years ago, Jesus on the cross, or, or coming to faith, you know, just maybe a couple of weeks ago, months ago, years ago, you're enough. I trust you that you're enough in the moment here. But what is hope? Hope is looking to the future, which is the last thing here. That is to embrace our future. You see, we only have the present moment right now. We don't live in the past. We shouldn't. We shouldn't live in the future either. We're supposed to live in the present. We're supposed to be present in the present. And what happens is there's pressure on the present from the past and the future. And what Jesus is doing here for Jairus as well as this woman and what he's doing for you and for me, he's saying live in the present moment in light of the past, but welcome the future. And allow the future, allow the past to come and press upon the present moment to inform you of how to live in your moment of trauma, in your moment of suffering, in the moment of crisis, wherever you find yourself. We cannot live in either of those places, but both those places have to speak to our current moment. And so it is faith and hope together, two sides of the same coin. And the reason why we must embrace that hope of the future is because these healings were temporary. This little girl raised from the dead, she would eventually die again. This woman whose ailments were, were miraculously cured would eventually die, perhaps of some other ailments. We cannot place our trust or our hopes that even if Jesus were to miraculously show up right now in your lives with whatever it is that you're dealing with and heal that miraculously, as wonderful as that is, that cannot be our hope. Our hope cannot be in that power of the miracle. Our hope must be in the person of Jesus Christ who defeated death itself. And so that's where I end. Is, is that your hope right now? In light of your faith of the past, allow it to affect your moment as you work through whatever it is that God has for you in the moment. Have ears to hear and eyes to see. Where is Jesus at work? Come, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon us. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, we find ourselves so much like either this woman or this ruler. We're in a position of prominence, or maybe we don't feel like we have that. Our faith is weak. Our faith doesn't even seem to register on the Richter scale. But Jesus, in your grace, it has been enough. None of us deserve what we have in you, and yet you have showered us with your grace. Let us now see your face. And Lord, Reclaim our hearts. Reclaim the places of bitterness and of cynicism where we have doubted whether you're even there or whether you even care. Lord, teach us through these stories. Holy Spirit, empower us through the power of Christ to see both his weakness and his power that defeated death. To see the picture of Jesus, the one that we need right now in our crisis. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, Savior of sinners, in our resurrection. Amen. Amen.